All right, now listen, uh, my voice today is pretty much akin to fingernails on a chalkboard, and, um, and this is your last chance to escape. No, I'm kidding. I, um, you can escape anytime you want. I, I actually feel good, but I had no vocal output at all three days ago, so this is actually a miraculous gift. Um, it doesn't sound like a miraculous gift, but it is. It, it doesn't hurt. So stop wincing, um, I mean, except for your own pain, but uh, don't worry about me, um, but let's do, let's do pray that it lasts through the whole service. They did record the last hour so that if this goes out, I'll just pantomime. It'll be like vanilla ice. I'll, uh, I'll just mouth the words. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this chance to gather. We do pray for vocal strength, <clears throat> and especially I pray for my friends that they will be able to focus on your scripture and learn and be, and be blessed in a depth of your presence and your word, your power in their lives, despite my very broken vessel. We thank you for all the blessings you have bestowed on us. We've had a lot of people ill, and you are healing, and we are so grateful. We thank you for our... Um, the frankly miraculous and beautiful outcome with law enforcement down the road yesterday. Our neighbors at Beth Israel are safe, and we are very thankful for that. Father, we pray for, um, for all those who are exhausted but full of joy from our big youth retreat this weekend, the Winterfest, and uh, what, a, what a very rich time in hundreds of kids' lives. And we pray that it wraps up really well this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, good morning, everybody. There are certain tools that are required for certain jobs, right? So I'm going to show you some tools, and then you're going to tell me what jobs are associated with those tools. So uh, what job is associated with these particular tools? A baker or a pastry chef, right? Those are the kind of things you would use for that job. What about this? You've got a cow, you've got a pail. A dairy farmer. One of our elders emeritus grew up on a dairy farm in Wisconsin. Um, anybody else here ever milked a cow? Raise your hand. Not very many of us. We need to work on that. All right. Um, <clears throat> what about these? What are those tools for? <laughs> no, not torture. <laughs> we need to talk. Very important health, your dental health. Those are those are implements for your dental health. All right, let me give you one last one. Strength and courage. What are those tools needed for? They're need yeah, that's right, parenting. They're needed for leadership of any kind. Strength and courage are absolutely required for any kind of leadership. But sadly, even though these are the tools needed for leadership, they are they are greatly lacking. Strength and courage are in very short supply. In your notes, you'll find my summary statement. Look in your notes. If you're online with us, we are thrilled to be with you. Um, we, we recognize there are probably many people across the southeastern United States with us today that aren't usually as you're snowed in. We're actually jealous. But um, uh, you'll find a link on there from your host that will take you to the notes. Um, you'll see my summary. The need for leadership is critical. Tuesday Strong is a... Um, a pretty successful management consultant. A, a year ago, she penned a summary of the desperate need for leadership. Look what she said. If you've recently found yourself frustrated and confused by leadership, you're not alone. Being able to take change, 
during periods of being able to take charge during periods of rapid change and deal effectively with ambiguity are key competencies needed in today's leaders. We need individuals who are decisive, trustworthy, and capable of creating solutions today that position us for the future. Unfortunately, not all leaders are prepared to lead. Close quote. We need leadership that is sound in our countries, in our homes, in our businesses, our neighborhoods, our churches. A generation ago, Ronald Reagan very bravely demanded, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall, right? But what leader today, and I'm not trying to be ugly, I I just need to point out, I don't see any leader today doing anything that sound regarding the Myanmar coup or or the serious threat to Ukraine or the loss of momentum in the Arab-Israeli relations, or, or Iran's nuclear weapons, or China's threats toward Australia, or the surge of kidnappings in the Caribbean. Instead of leadership, we have today a world that is inundated with absurdly wishful thinking and bribery. Now, of course, that's only a problem for world leaders. Thank goodness we are not like that. (laughs) None of us are poor leaders. We never keep a toxic employee around too long in our businesses, or do we? We never bribe our children to obey. (laughs) Oh, please don't. We, we, We never, absolutely never let bullies get their way. We always speak the truth in love, even to bullies on on boards or, or in our neighborhoods or in our schools, right? Thank goodness we are not like those world leaders at whom we scoff. You know what they do? They they retreat in the face of controversy and they change their principles just to gain popularity and power. Churches never do that. Or do they? The point is that everyone From people leading their individual lives to commanders of thousands, everyone finds leadership difficult. It's hard. The need for leadership is critical, and the lack of leadership, the task of leadership is difficult. That's true in our day. It was true at the opening of the book of Joshua. Open your Bible to Joshua chapter 1. Joshua 1, let's read verses 1 and 2. After the death of Moses, the Lord's servant, the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now you and all the people prepare to cross over the Jordan to the land I am giving the Israelites. Let's stop there. The task of leadership is difficult. There are very few Reagans in world leadership, and there are even fewer Moseses. In fact, there was only one. I want to show you a brief, very brief summary of the most unique leader, I think, in all of human history. Moses, do you know this about him? He spoke with God face to face as a person speaks to his friend. No one else is ever described that way, ever. Mo- Moses, has, he wrote poetry, a great deal of it actually, that will be sung at, at different critical moments in history. He authored the law, but he's known for, for, for his faith. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us, the Shekinah glory of God rested on and glowed on Moses' face. Okay, this is the most wild piece of all. Angels and demons battled over his physical body, the shell of the human being. No one else has that resume. Outside of Jesus, Moses is absolutely unmatched. Now think, if you're Joshua, how do you feel about following that? <laughs> Joshua has to succeed Moses. And, and it's even harder for Joshua because Moses is more than just a powerful leader. He appears to be a real father figure in, Ju- in, in Joshua's life. Joshua's family, even his grandfather, who was the head of their tribe, 
the chieftain of their tribe, rejected Joshua and sided with the, the fools when only Joshua and Caleb stood with Moses and God's word. Moses is very important in his life. Now, whomever he follows, sound leadership is going to be very difficult in Joshua's situation. I just grabbed a few. I want to show you a few particular obstacles that Joshua faces. In Joshua's day, here's what God's people were doing. They were offering salvation. They were offering salvation by trust, by faith, in joining Israel and Yahweh. It was being roundly rejected. Very, very, very few people accepted it. One remarkable lady named Rahab will meet in a few days. They're being excluded from their inheritance, from the heritage of their ancestors. They're in this weird situation where there's a strange shift in world politics. There's a real void in world power. And they're having to raise families and build businesses in this strange new world, right? Now, as you likely observed, as I read those, those are very similar to what Christians face in many countries today. Something that Tim Keller noted not long ago. Tim Keller pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. He was one of the great leaders of the early 21st century. After his retirement and his cancer diagnosis, Keller shared the following in an interview. Uh, he actually said a great deal. I'm going I'm to summarize. Tim, he really needed a better editor. Anyway, um, the interview was done by Sophia Lee, and she asked this very precinct question. What do you see as the greatest threat to modern-day Christians? This was Keller's answer. In the U.S., I think the second greatest threat is a new progressive secular ideology that is coming to dominate the academy, the government, the corporate world, and the mainstream media. It is against freedom of speech and deeply opposed to religious people expressing or practicing many aspects of their faith in public. However, Keller said, the first and greatest threat is the failure of the American church itself. He had a number of things here. I've just chosen three. The mainline church wedded itself to liberal political parties, and the evangelical church has done that with conservative political parties. As a result, he, he went on to say, I'll read him, we are now seen as nothing but a power politic block. Secondly, there have been egregious examples of hypocrisy with many prominent church leaders, and the church has failed in the Great Commission it has not discovered a way to evangelize a post-Christian secular culture, close quote, indeed. And that is very similar to Joshua's situation. The obvious conclusion is that in, in nearly every time and place, God's followers face serious blockades to healthy, successful leadership. One more point we've got to make. The style of victorious leadership is biblical. Keller hinted at this in his interview, and Joshua does so even more powerfully. This is so cool. Look at the word used to describe Joshua in, in verse 1. Assistant is the Hebrew word ived. Ived, very important word. It's your fancy word for the day, boys and girls. On the count of three, you can say ived. Ived, one, two, three. Ived. Okay, ived means a servant. Now, it's used in a number of different ways. Sometimes it's used as for a slave. Uh, in the military especially, it's used for an officer of subordinate rank. Um, this is pretty cool. A lot of times in the Bible, Ibed is used uh, figuratively for a worshiper of God. But however it's used in the Bible or outside the Bible, Ibed always has this idea, servant. It is always someone who is a servant. Spoiler alert, Joshua becomes one of the most successful leaders in all of history. In some ways, he was even more productive than Moses. And his success begins right here in viewing himself as I'm Ved. Look, 
Every time scripture mentions leadership, it comes from one of two places. It's very binary. There's lording and there's serving. Lording is what non-scriptural people think of leadership. Uh, Jesus summarized it really well in Matthew 20. He said, don't do as the Gentiles do, lording it over one another. Lording is really interesting. It, it involves a strange combination that I still don't quite understand, but it involves having, having lots of, of discretionary time, leisure time, and yet feeling always uh, hurried. Um, lording sees everything in terms of coercion. You're, 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 you're angling, you're coercing, you're getting people to, to do what you want them to do. And by the way, this is very important. In lording, the only right motive is you. Uh, today, it's popular to say the brave choice. Um, it's not really brave at all, but it's, it's for you. That's lording. Serving, by contrast, Jesus also addressed in Matthew 20. He said, to be great in God's kingdom, you've got to be the what, everybody? The servant of all. It involves being sometimes busy. Servants can be busy, but they're never hurried. It's a really important part of the Gospels. Um, you, you persuade people because you care about them. You don't, you don't coerce them. You persuade them. And the only motive, the only right motive in serving is, is serving God. That's a whole different attitude. I think, I think maybe the best way I've ever heard this summarized was by a professor at the U.S. Military Academy, Colonel Dr. Christopher Kalinda. Look what he said. Once a leader uses coercion rather than persuasion... He or she is no longer, by definition, leading. To summarize, we need people who can lead lives of victory, but that task is difficult. And to succeed, we need to serve, not lord over, right? Amen? To cement this, let's read Jesus' statement together. We'll go back to Matthew 20. You join me on the underlying part. Jesus called them over and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those in high positions act as tyrants over them. It must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If we're going to lead effectively, strength and courage are essential. We see that in Joshua 1, but the lesson begins back in Deuteronomy 31. Turn back a couple of pages to the left in your Bible. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 31, contains some of Moses' last words, and let's read starting in verse 3. The Lord your God, says Moses, is the one who will cross ahead of you. He will destroy these nations before you, and you will drive them out. Joshua is the one who will cross ahead of you, as the Lord has said. Down to verse 6. Be strong and courageous. Don't be terrified or afraid of them. For the Lord your God is the one who will go with you. He will not leave you or abandon you. Moses then summoned Joshua and said to him, In the sight of all Israel, be what, everybody? Good gracious. You can't say that with such little strength and courage. I'm the one with the bad voice. What? That was absurd. Do not let that happen again. All right. What does it say, everybody, in verse 6? Be Thank you. Verse 7, I'm sorry, we're in 7. It says it in both. Um, For you will go with this people into the land the Lord swore to give their fathers. You will enable them to take possession of it. The Lord is the one who will go before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or abandon you. Do not be afraid or discouraged. Now this scene, what we just read, occurs about 
30 days before what we read in Joshua chapter 1. And what are the two big ideas? Strength and courage, right? By the way, that's the big headline on top of the right side of our notes. Strength and courage are essential. Now, that brings up the thought. I know you're asking in your Ronald Reagan imitation, you're asking, well, that settles it, doesn't it? Just be strong and courageous and your leadership will excel. Class over. <laughs> Hang on, Gipper. As you well know, every bully, every bad leader, every Gentile despot in history has had strength. Quite a few even had courage. But that doesn't mean that they had healthy leadership. Look, the pharaohs who were over Joshua, ruling his life as a slave, they were strong. So, so, so was Xerxes, the Persian. So was Cleobrotus, the, the Spartan, one of the strongest men who ever ruled a country. They didn't leave anything of measurable value in the world. Seriously, they left a lot of negative only. There are courageous people. Hernando Cortez was very courageous. Uh, Paul Pot was courageous. So was Stalin. But they didn't accomplish anything that would be worthy of the Lord. Nothing at all. There's no lasting impact. You need strength and courage, but strength and courage has to be built on something. So look at Deuteronomy 31. What are strength and courage built on? Let's start right here. If you look at that passage, you'll see that they are inextricably, the real kind of strength and courage that makes a difference are inextricably connected to the presence of the Lord. Look, look. Verse 3, God calls for strength and courage, and the context shows where Joshua's strength and courage come from, the presence of Yahweh. In verse 7, Moses speaks God's word to Joshua. Be what, everybody? Much better. Where, where can Joshua possibly find enough strength and courage for the hard tasks in front of him? From the presence of God. As our pulpit team talked about this, Martin McDonald shared this, Jim. He said, at the fountainhead of strength and courage are faith and trust. It is not dependence on our own abilities or strengths, but in God his promises and abilities, close quote. Just think back to what Joshua has learned in his life. I received a lot of great feedback over the past few days in response to the homework I gave last time. They were all wonderful, really great letters. Tim Chase specifically wrote me a very long letter. He needs an editor worse than Keller does. Anyway, um, he wrote me a long letter about how Joshua had been prepared for strength and courage. Here's my summary of Tim's really wonderful note. He said, Joshua got front row seats to some pretty up-close moments with God's presence. He, he accompanied Moses up Sinai to receive the law. He stood in the tent of the Moses God's, God meetings. He led a contingent of troops against the Amalekites where God's supernatural power provided victory. He saw, Joshua saw the curse of the venomous snakes and the Lord's miraculous healing. He witnessed fire from heaven consume the outskirts of the camp. Tim then closed with this. He said, sorry for the semi-long ramble of observations, but I figured if you're going to assign me homework, I'll subject you to its results. I did ask for it. As Joshua experienced and as he was told, strength and courage come from Yahweh's presence. If you want to make a difference in life, strength and courage aren't enough as the world sees that it. it's got to come from Yahweh's presence and, in your notes, be founded on God's promises. All right, turn back over to Joshua 1 and let's read more of our thought section. Let's start at the beginning again. After the death of Moses, the servant, the Lord's servant, the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now you and all the people prepare to cross over the Jordan to the land I'm giving the Israelites, giving you every place where the sole of your foot treads, just as I promised Moses. Your territory will be from the wilderness and Lebanon to the great river, the Euphrates River. 
all the land of the Hittites and west of the Mediterranean Sea. No one will be able to stand against you as long as you live. I'll be with you just as I was with Moses. I will not leave you or abandon you. Be strong and courageous. For you will distribute the land I swore to their fathers to give them as an inheritance. God's promises. The first thing that jumps out to me here is God's promise of land. Look up at the map here. This is the land which was granted to Abraham. Abraham and his, and his offspring possessed this land through, through a kind of law that is not understood very well today, although it still exists in many law codes, through, through the ownership of improvement. God granted this land to Abraham, and he and his offspring did the most important kind of improvement you could do in the ancient Near East. They dug wells. Do you ever wonder why in your Bible it talks about wells being dug so much? Because that's how you showed ownership of property, right? Notice how massive this land is. Now, there's some uncertainty. We don't know. In the Genesis passage, he tells Abram and his offspring that the western boundary is going to be the river of Egypt. We don't really know if that means the Nile or the Suez area or maybe even something up here at the Negev. Uh, I think most likely it's the Nile. We don't know how far east, because it's not said, how far east the territory would have extended into the, the wilderness, the desert. We know that the, the northeastern boundary is the Euphrates, but then he said, you read this, all the land of the Hittites. That causes lots of debate among Bible scholars because the Hittites at the time of Abraham, they controlled this Anatolian, uh, what we call Turkey today, the heartland of Asia Minor and, and much of Asia Minor. And they also controlled this area right here. It's probably most likely that when he says land of the Hittites, he's referring to this area here where the Kurds live today. Um, actually, we have people from this part of the world that study with us. Hello to any Kurds. Uh, studying with us today. Uh, they cover three different countries in their territory, but it, I could be wrong. It may not just mean this area where the Hittites were that Abraham met. Those were the ones he knew. It may mean the whole Hittite territory, in which case Israel's promised land is going to be inclusive of all of modern Turkey. Isn't that amazing? Now, this is an unconditional promise that was given to Abraham. It was repeated to his son, repeated to his grandson, and then again spoken through Moses and Joshua. Strength and courage come from God's promises. He promised land, and, and God made some very specific guarantees to Joshua. Look at his pledges here that we just read. No person will be able to stand before Joshua. Wow. Yahweh will be with him. God will not fail him. God will not forsake him. Isn't that amazing? Now, I need to cover a quick word on God's promises. Look, in every contract ever written, promises fall into two kinds of categories, the unconditional and the conditional. Same thing's true of God's promises. They fall into two categories. Unconditional promises, when you see those in the Bible, means there's no, there's no condition around, there's no attached expectation Okay, for fulfillment, nothing needs to be done by the recipient. All right, these these are called unilateral covenants. They're guaranteed. Conditional covenants are very different. They have give and take. The the, the fulfillment demands reciprocal action on the other part. Um, it, it's always detailed in the text of the of the agreement of the covenant. These are called bilateral agreements, okay? The big examples of each are the two covenants that preceded Joshua. The Abrahamic covenant, there's no if-then in those. These are, these are unconditional promises. It is an unconditional guaranteed covenant. The Mosaic law covenant, that one's very conditional. If-then. If you do this, you get that. Do you see the difference? 
All right. When God promises Joshua that he's going to distribute this land, it's an expectation of the Abrahamic land covenant made 400 years earlier. But look carefully. The land promise, as it is framed through Moses and Joshua, contains a conditional aspect as well. The Israelites have to take possession. If they follow their Mosaic covenant faithfully, they will take possession of the land as intended. If they don't, the Abrahamic covenant was unconditional. It will happen, but not under them. It'll have to wait. Why don't you look back at Deuteronomy. A little bit earlier, Deuteronomy chapter 28, the, Is- the Israelites are experiencing an electric moment. Um, the-, the people are gathered on these two massive hillsides, Mount, uh, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Um, millions of people with this incredibly orchestrated, the only way I can think to describe it, this is the greatest pep rally in human history, okay? The A&M Yell leaders have nothing on what happened in Deuteronomy 28. Just an amazing scene. And, And as they're going back and forth reciting the covenant, Moses says this. When they finish, Yahweh says this through Moses. The Lord will make you the head and not the tail. You will only move upward and never downward if, see that conditional word? If you listen to the Lord your God's commands I'm giving you today and are careful to follow them. Do not turn aside to, from the, to the right or to the left from all the things I'm commanding you today. And do not follow other gods to worship them. But if you do not obey the Lord your God by carefully following the commands and statutes I'm giving today, these curses, that's part of what they were doing in the pep rally, will come and overtake you. Down to verse 33. A people you don't know will eat your land's produce and everything you've labored for. You will only be oppressed and crushed continually. Down to verse 63. You'll be ripped out from the land that you're entering to possess. The Lord will scatter you among all the peoples from one end of the earth to the other. Now, you people who know the Bible, tell me, after Joshua's death, Did Israel keep the law and fulfill those conditional promises, what we just read in Deuteronomy 28? Did Israel do that, yes or no? No, they did not. Therefore, their boundaries through the history of Israel have never come close to God's unconditional promise to Abraham. Now, thankfully, the Old Testament prophets remind us that that original unconditional covenant will be fulfilled. It will be fulfilled in Messiah's kingdom. Here's how my old teacher, Dan Campbell, uh, summarized it. Don Campbell said, The territory conquered and possessed in the time of Joshua was much less than what was promised in Genesis 15. Even in the time of David and Solomon, when Israeli land reached its greatest extent, the outlying districts were only faintly within Israel's sphere of influence and never under Israel's control. When will the nation of Israel fully possess the land? The prophets have declared that at the time of Christ's return to earth, he will gather the Jews and reign in the land over a converted and redeemed Israel. Full and complete possession of the land awaits that day. Amen? Strength and courage are reliably found in God's presence, in his promises, both the unconditional ones and the conditional ones. And fortitude comes, third thing we need for real strength and courage, through God's direction in his word. Okay, back to Joshua 1 with ye. Turn back to Joshua 1. Let's finish our section. Verse 7. Above all, Be strong and courageous to observe carefully the whole instruction my servant Moses commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or the left so that you will have success wherever you go. This book of instruction must not depart from your mouth. You are to meditate on it day and night so that you may carefully observe everything written in it. For then you will prosper and succeed in whatever you do. Haven't I commanded you? Be what, everybody? 
That was good. I still think the people at home are probably louder. Um, Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. You know, there's a unique nature to God's written word. Back in Deuteronomy, um, we, we learned that God's words were kept in a book beside the Ark of the Covenant. When they had that, that great big pep rally, they built these altars and God's words were written on the altars. Verse 8 is not figurative. It is very literally a scroll. We, we translate book of instruction. There is a singularity of obedience regarding God's word. Nothing else is like it. The source of success is in following God's word. That's why we need to be thinking and speaking it all the time. Years of forcing you to play Simon Says have all led up to this moment. Please stand if you are able. Stand up right now, please, Simon Says. I know we have people sitting with us that are from other cultures that don't play Simon Says. We're going to start a worldwide revolution as you take this back to your homes. Um, These are the rules. I am Simon. You must look at Simon at all times. At all times. You must do whatever Simon Says, but only when the command is preceded by what? Simon says, no matter what Simon does, no matter what's going on around you, do as Simon says. Are you ready? By the way, this is not an unconditional covenant. This is a conditional exercise. If you don't do what Simon says, then you have to sit down. If you do what Simon says, you have to remain standing. Simon says, touch your ears. Simon says, touch your elbows. Touch your ears. (laughs) All right. Simon says, one time, mercy. Everybody's still in. I mean, that took out a bunch. All right, here we go. Touch your nose. (laughs) All right. Simon says, take your right hand, put on your left knee. All right, now take your left hand, put on your right knee. Oh, golly. Simon says, take your left hand, put on your right knee. Simon says, switch them. Switch them back. Simon says, look at Simon at all times. Gentlemen in the middle of the room with their heads down. Yes, Simon is up here. Simon says, touch your elbows. (laughs) All right. Um, Simon says, touch your left elbow with your right hand and touch your nose with your left hand. Okay, got it? All right. Simon says, switch, right elbow, left hand, nose. We used to do a song called Waddly Acha with this all the time. Okay, switch it back. (laughs) Yeah. All right, now switch it back. Oh. Oh, that's ugly. All right, Simon says, clap five times. Now, one more. (laughs) Simon says, give yourselves a hand. That was really nice. Simon says, sit down, sit down. Like Simon says, verses 7 through 9 are conditional. Now, look at it. Because of God's unconditional presence, the presence of God is unconditional. Because of that, Joshua has the power to fulfill the conditional command and live his life scripturally. But he's got to do what Simon, I mean, God says. Only if he does so will he prosper and succeed. Again, Deuteronomy anticipated all of Joshua 1. There's a great passage in Deuteronomy 29. God says this. When someone hears the words of this oath, he may consider himself exempt, thinking, I'll have peace even though I follow my own stubborn heart. This will lead to the destruction. By contrast to that destruction, Joshua can experience success and prosperity. Look at verse 8. The two words we render, success and prosperity, are forms of these nouns, uh, salahal and sakhal. 
Salahal is an odd term. Um, experts argue over its beginnings, but they, but they all agree that it means to break through. It was employed in battle for that wonderful rare moment when your army managed to break through the, the line of the other army and thus you could roll them up. So, of course, over time, it came to, to indicate prosperity or victory. Um, Sahal was originally a Semitic word for being skillful, for being wise, for being prudent. So it, it kind of makes sense that this morphed into a term for, for success. Now, here's what, here's what intrigues me. Look at Joshua 1.8. It's declaring that life's success, life's skillfulness, doesn't come from just being well-educated. It doesn't come from just, just being experienced, from studying your situation or your task. Those may be important, but it comes from studying Scripture and your situation. Now, as you're cheering right now, I know in your, in your Hebrew pep rally voice, you're saying, um, what about us? Right? That's what you're doing. Okay, good. Great question. It takes us to the logical application here. In a beautiful parallel to Joshua, the Christian strength and courage is founded on the same things. Let's start with God's promises to Christians. There's too many, there are too many for us to cover in a morning, but here's what we can do. We can learn to look for God's promises in Scripture, both the unconditional ones and the conditional ones. You'll see the if, the, the when, the conditions. You'll also see ones that are unconditional, right? In general, this is just in general, conditional promises that apply to Christians can be found mostly in the wisdom books of the Old Testament, especially Psalms and Proverbs. For example, uh, Proverbs 16 has a statement of fact. It works like a promise for all of God's people of all times. Uh, Proverbs 16, read verse 20 with me, please. The one who trusts in the Lord will be happy. Do you see the condition? You've got to trust in the Lord, and there's happiness. Now, in general, again, this is in general, the unconditional promises for Christians are found in the New Testament. I just grabbed a few. Here's a few of them. We have unity in Jesus. Did you know that? I mean, we have to maintain it. We should foster it. But you don't ever need to create unity. <laughs> that's, that's absurd. It's a fact. You just need to build on it. Jesus will remain faithful. There's no condition on that promise. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. We're told that trials and testings that we all run into produce endurance Jesus is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. This is one of my favorites, Revelation 22. In the, in the New Jerusalem, when we are translated into our permanent state, there is no longer going to be any curse. You know, when Moses did that great pep rally on evil and Gerizim, every time he spoke God's words, the people said, amen. Can I get an amen for those? Amen, amen. Now, there exists a number of very ugly modern problems where people misapply or warp God's promises. I wish I could address them all. I only have time to address one heresy, so I picked this one, something called process theology. It has become somewhat popular among churches to speak of God as if he were in process, as if he did not fully know what would occur, or he didn't really have power over all events. A British mathematician named Alfred Whitehead started this, this, uh, this whole phenomenon. Whitehead was a, was a gifted mathematician. He was really bothered by the uncertainty of what we now call quantum mathematics. So what he decided was that because he saw such uncertainty in quantum mathematics, God is not really in charge. 
At least, he's not in charge of anything that human beings might find negative. So what he did was he twisted a few verses of scripture, and he threw in a little Plato and a little Einstein, he invented a new God, a God who is, who is very changeable. He's not immutable at all. Of course, you know, I hope that doesn't work when you're studying the Bible and you're looking at context, it utterly falls apart. When you read the whole Bible, that nonsense falls apart. But there are people that I know and people I love who hold to this process theology, including an acquaintance of mine who leads a very large church. When I hear this sad excuse for theology, my heart breaks for the speaker because here's what I've found. Every time I find someone who's holding to process theology, they have endured great pain. And, and this has become their convoluted way, follow the logic here, of trying to keep from having to wrestle with the real God who really is in charge. Rather than deal with the pain that comes from a life of hurts where God is in control, they make up this alternate reality where God is limited. Scripture teaches us that when we wrestle with God, when we take hard questions to Him, and Scripture calls for us to wrestle with God, all through the Psalms and Jeremiah and Habakkuk and, and the Garden of Gethsemane and Paul's writings, wrestle with God. Three times I wrestled with God, Paul says. We take hard questions to God because He wants to meet with us. And what happens when we do that, some of you have walked this road, we, we find perspective that is far beyond ourselves. And we find God to be bigger than we could have ever imagined. As C.S. Lewis wrote, every time you engage with me, you find me bigger. That's the biblical way. The process theology way is to avoid that. It, it's to flee the hard questions. And in a really warped way, they're actually trying to defend God. Because there's hard things in the world. So, so let's just make him not in charge of those. We'll reduce his presence or his power. And as a result, they find him smaller and smaller than they ever imagined. The results of that thinking are not surprising. Long before Alfred Whitehead, a guy named Martin Luther saw this theology. It's fascinating. Martin Luther understood this kind of false God. In particular, he was horrified that the promises of that kind of limited God cannot be trusted. I put in your notes part of Luther's excellent answer. I couldn't fit it all. Uh, this is from his, his wonderful book, um, the, the, Bounded, the Bondage of the Will. Look what he said. If you hesitate to believe or are too proud to acknowledge that God foreknows and wills all things, not contingently, but necessarily and immutably... How can you believe, trust, and rely on his promises? When he makes his promises, you ought to be out of doubt that he knows, cares, and will perform what he promises. We should glory in the fact, as Paul does in Romans 3, let God be true, but every man a liar. And, and again, Romans 9, not that the word of God has failed. The Christian's chief and only comfort in every adversity lies in knowing that God does not lie, but brings all things to pass immutably, and that his will cannot be resisted altered or impeded, close quote. Along with Luther, I plead with you, look for God's promises and trust him. And when you are uncertain, and you will be, wrestle with him. You will find him bigger. Do you need real strength and real courage for all the leadership situations God has placed in your life? Do you? Yes or no? Please say yes. Please say yes. Yes, you do. All right. Then trust God's promises. Remember, real strength and courage comes from God's promises 
And secondly, steep yourself in God's direction through his word. Read with me. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. Paul said, until I come, give your attention to public reading, exhortation, and teaching. In context, Paul's talking about reading, teaching, and applying the scripture. This is why our wonderful teachers here, all these servants we have here, teach from the scripture. They don't just share their own thoughts. This is why we read the Bible here before all. This is God's pattern for the churches. We, like Joshua, are to pay attention to the word of God. Do according to all of it. Do not depart to the left or to the right. I live on a country road that has pretty deep gullies on either side of the asphalt. What happens if I depart from the roadway? What happens if I get into that, that gully, that ditch? Aha, I get to buy a new car, right? It's horrible. That's why we're careful on our road to stay on the right track. In the same way, the ditches of your world are full of nonsense that will wreck your life. But you can succeed. Unlike all those poor folks who reject Jesus for whatever is the latest thing to wash down the gutter, you have an all-weather perfect roadway in Christ. You have the very word of God, and you can move ahead on that. In fact, you can enjoy an exhilarating, speedy life if you will just stay on the road of God's word. Strength and courage, real lasting strength and courage found on God's promises to Christians, God's direction through his word, and thirdly, God's unfailing presence for us just as for Joshua. Here, read with me again the mission of Frisco Bible. Altogether, this is our mission. We are redeemed community doing the great commission by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. Now, that great commission that we talk about is Jesus' command in Matthew 28. Look what he said. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you how long, everybody? Always, even to the end of the age. God is on hand to empower what he commands. Here we learn that Jesus is with us always in spirit now and physically upon his return. By the way, there's other passages that show that the Holy Spirit of God is also indwelling and with every single believer in Jesus. Scripture tells us that God the Father is omnipotent. He is, he is all-powerful and he is everywhere. He is omnipresent in our lives. When we really absorb this triune truth of God with us, it gives us strength and courage. It changes everything. For example, Psalm 55. One of David's terrible songs of pain. He was betrayed by a friend. And, and yet, God's presence gives David such strength that even in his wounded state, he wrote this. Read it with me. Psalm 55, 22. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. Many of us here have been wounded deeply. And we echo that strength of David's. We know that when we, we cast our cares on the Lord... He promises to be present, and he is. He sustains us. The Apostle Paul lived under intense persecution, and yet he found incredible courage and strength because of God's presence and love. And under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, he said this to you. He said this to you. Here's how you find strength and courage. Remember this. Romans chapter 8. No, in all these things. And he's just talked about perils and famine and sword. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that either death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. All God's people said... If you trust Jesus, that is true for you as well. Know it. Absorb it. 
His presence is your lifeline to strength and courage. Pray with me. Pray with me. I'm going to pray this. I, I recommend you join me. Because you are with me, Lord, I will commit to prepare for crossing into spiritual battles. I will follow Yeshua, Jesus, our, our Joshua. And through your presence and the direction of your word and your promises, both the unconditional and conditional, I will be strong and courageous for the work you put before me. In Jesus' name.